I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel, and joining me here in LA, as always from back in our hometown of London, is my co-host, Joe. We also have a special guest on today's call. He's the Director of Advocacy for Fair Game. In this role, he's working directly with politicians in order to establish an independent regulatory body that can fairly and objectively oversee English domestic football operations. Furthermore, by enacting the redistribution of funds across football clubs up and down the country, Fair Game is seeking to ensure that the respective histories that make these clubs so unique can remain the guiding force for their futures. Today's guest is also a Grimsby Town fan. We welcome Mike Baker to the United Mates Football Podcast. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you with us on the pod. Thanks very much for joining us. And how's it going? Well, thank you uh, for having us along. Well, it was all going well with Grimsby until Saturday, until last few weeks. We've lost three in a row now. Uh, <laughs> watching us lose at Aldershot was a new low, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a bit miserable, I, I, I can't deny. But the uh, as, a, as a pescatarian, a proud pescatarian, I've often wanted to, to visit Grimsby for the, for the seafood uh, alone. <laughs> um, uh, so maybe that would, that would make up for it slightly. Uh, Joe. As we record, England are about to play San Marino, and there's a very high chance indeed that we'll be qualified for the World Cup by the end of that match. But my question to you, besides how it's going, mate, is do you think there's going to be more Arsenal or more Spurs players on that plane to Qatar next winter? Oh, God knows. God knows. I mean, Saka and Smith Rowe will, will be on the plane, I assume. Um, Aaron maybe. Ramsdale, maybe? Ben White? Yeah, Ben White. Yeah, oh, God, it's already not. I mean, assume Kane will still be a Tottenham player then and then maybe maybe oh I don't know I don't want to say Arsenal but it's probably Arsenal isn't it but we'll see we'll see um but yeah Mike as as Kai was saying and um, you know we're delighted to have you on the podcast this evening and then um, when we do podcasts we always ask an icebreaker question to our guests to get things started so we've got one for you Mike and obviously you're from Fair Game um, that is the name of the organisation that you represent. But um, what we want to ask you, Mike, is what is the most unfair game of football you can think of from your memory? We'll give you some time to think about it. Um, but um, yeah, you can you can mull over it for a second. We'll, we'll give our ones first. I think my one would probably have to be um, Tottenham when they played United, I think, in 2005. And Pedro Mendes in the last minute scored from the halfway line. But there was no goal line technology then, and they they didn't give it. That was that was very gutting um, and very unfair, in my opinion. But Kai, before we go to Mike, what do you reckon is the most unfair game you can think of? I definitely remember the Pedro Mendes volley that Roy Carroll dropped into his net that didn't count. Uh, shame about that one. I think back then I would have liked to have seen United lose at lose at home, even to Spurs. But for me, it's got to be a game so controversial that I think we probably all remember the referee's name, which is kind of unusual for that to be a standout thing. And it's Tom, Tom Henning of Rabo who refereed the, um, 
Chelsea versus Barcelona Champions League match at Stamford Bridge that I think Iniesta must have won for Barcelona right at the very end after Chelsea were denied countless penalties. It's a ridiculous game. Drogba, I think we all remember what he had to say um, to the cameras at the end of that match. I won't repeat it on this podcast, but um, yeah, it's got to be that one, surely. But but Mike, what's the most unfair game that you've seen? Oh, I, I think being a town fan, you get used to losing. They, 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 <laughs> they actually hold the records uh, for the most relegations and for the most league matches lost in the Football League. Um, so I have too many to choose from. I think the worst, um, one of the worst games that I've come across where I felt really, um, it wasn't so much that it was an unfair result, but the way and the spirit in which it was played it actually came at Bromley this season. Um, we were 1-0 up at half-time. Second half, there was a lightning storm. We were out in the open on Noting Terrace. The rain was sheeting down and us, sheeting down on us. And every time Bromley scored, their players ignored their own fans and came running over to the Grimsby fans to taunt them. Then their manager did the same. And then at the end, when our team came over to applaud, one of their subs run over and started <laughs> effing and blinding and gesturing at the fans. We were just bewildered. Um, so I think for sheer bad sportsmanship, uh, the Bromley game uh, gets it for me. Yeah, who knew that the rivalry between uh, Grimsby and Bromley ran ran that deep? But um, we uh, certainly didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we're going to go on to speak more about about football. Um, take it back to to your childhood. That's kind of how we like to start with our guests. Is is where things really began. Um, sort of drawing upon some of your earliest memories of playing or watching, Mike? What, what is your football origin story, so to speak? Um, how did you get involved in, in playing yourself and how did you become a Grimsby Town fan? Well, I became a town fan because I grew up in Blundell Avenue, so you could, uh, which is where they play um, in Cleethorpes. Um, it's one of those ironic, slightly awkward things that happens up there, you know, where Cleethorpes Town actually playing Grimsby uh, and Grimsby Town playing Cleethorpes. Um, they're more or less one town. And uh, so I could literally see the floodlights from the end of my street and you just started going. And those were days we had a, a manager called Laurie McMenemy, who you may have heard of. And uh, he just revitalised the whole team. We had, I think our average was like over 11,000. There were games with 20 odd thousand in the ground, um, which was probably extremely dangerous. There were people like, sitting on the roofs and things like that. And you can imagine at the age of seven or eight, this is unbelievable. You, know, you just think, this is, um, you've, you've died and gone to football heaven. Um, of course, uh, by the time I was old enough to go regularly on my own, we got relegated and crowds were right down. So <laughs> I knew what I was in for by then. But um, that, that was really it. And I just grew up there. I used to sell programmes outside the ground. Later on, I co-founded a, a fanzine called Sing When We're Fishing. Um, so, you know, it was, it was all a really good laugh. Um, and there's just a, a sense of community there that I don't think you get um, at the bigger games. And I actually, I do, because I live down south now because we moved, uh, well, I moved because we had to just where the jobs were, really. And um, so my, my kids actually both support Arsenal. And, <laughs> sorry, Joe. <laughs> And uh, so I've been to the Emirates a few times um, and, you know, and I've seen Arsenal many times over the years and, you know, have an affinity for them. And, and, but it's not, it's just completely different being at somewhere like the Emirates where um, 
I feel it's almost like you're, it's like going out to the West End or something. You have a show, it's all a big noise, and then you go. Um, which was a bit different at Highbury. I don't know whether it's just the ground move. Blundell Park is just totally different, you know, and I rock up at Grimsby, like at Aldershot on Saturday, you see half a dozen people that you know are always going to be there. You've known all your, you see people you met at school and it's just a sense of belonging there that I think is stronger than you get in the big Premier League clubs. Um, so, yeah, that's, it, it, if anything, it's made me, being away has made the heart grow fonder, if you know what I mean. Not least because I, I don't see him as often, so I don't get disillusioned as often. <laughs> <laughs> no, that I, I see what you mean, and um, yeah, it's funny actually. You mentioned Laurie McMenemy because a, a recent guest of ours, Paul McVeigh, and um, played under McMenemy when he was the Northern Ireland manager. And um, so yeah, we yeah he had a few anecdotes about the man recently. So yeah, <laughs> he's a uh, in the fine voice on this podcast. But um, Mike, when I think of Grimsby Town, I think of a game about 15 years ago when Grimsby actually beat Tottenham 1-0 at Blundell Park. I don't know, you might have even been there that night. Um, Jean-Paul Kalala, yes, I remember <laughs> it well. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah, yeah. I remember it less fondly than you, no doubt. But um, just sort of, yeah, bearing that game in mind, I don't know, that I'm sure that lives long in the memory. But what, yeah, have you got a have you got a favourite Grimsby Town match or maybe a favourite Grimsby Town season from the past of, of supporting them for all these years? Yeah, absolutely. The 79-80, we won the third division championship. And I know that sounds small, but we were beating teams like Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday. Um, and we had a League Cup run and we got Everton at Blundell Park and we had 23,000 in there. I mean, it can only hold 9,000 now. So, you know, God knows where they were packing everyone. And we won 2-1 and the whole town was buzzing. Everything was just sort of electric and people began to dream another one that I remember really fondly um was beating Chelsea 2-0 um Trevor Weimark getting a goal that was after we'd gone up uh, I've seen us beat Man City 5-1 in the league you know it's there's there's plenty of game but I would say it's that 79-80 season and there was one time in our first ever season also in 98 we got to Wembley for the first time ever and won the Auto Windscreens trophy, woohoo. Um, and then uh, we got there again six weeks later for the playoffs, and we won that too. So having never been in our history, we were there twice in six weeks. So that was um, really, that was a special season too. So those are, yeah, those are probably my biggest, but notice they're both last century. <laughs> well, I mean, they were last century, but I know, I know Grimsby are currently in the National League, and I know you said they lost their last few games, but in general, it's been a pretty good season. And there's actually looking at the the Grimsby squad this year for the National League, there's some you know quite impressive players in there. So, I mean, this season for Grimsby Town is is it kind of minimum expectations getting back into the Football League, or is it just is it just too difficult to say that with the National League being so competitive? It's, what what yeah what what is it that you uh, you think is going to happen for? It's too difficult. I think the start that we've had at the beginning of the season, we'd have we'd have made we were hoping for the playoffs if we did well. But we've got to remember, we were abject last year, um, and we lost some good players in the, at the same time. So to actually turn it around so quickly has sort of re, rebooted us and gave us hope. Um, but you've got to remember how many clubs there are for whom automatic promotion is the only. Uh, acceptable thing and there's only one automatic 
you know, uh, place and, and one on the playoffs. So you've got Wrexham, you know, Hollywood owners, big crowds. Notts County just had 12,500 for Solihull Moors at home. You know, they're, they're a massive club. And then you've got Chesterfield throwing money at everything, Stockport, all of this going on. So to actually compete against that is, is quite tough. So for me, I think if we get the playoffs, we'll have done ourselves proud. Um, but the, the mood around town at the moment is really up because of um, the new owners. We've had the same owner for about 20 years. And to be fair for, to him, we've never nearly gone bankrupt like nearly every other club in the lower leagues. So, you know, on that scale, but they were, we were stagnating. You know, we started off in a championship. We ended up in a national league. Um, and he left, he sold out to uh, a couple of new investors. We've been like a breath of fresh air. And it was interesting for me to see how the end of last season, when we still had John Fenty, to this season, when we got a guy called Jason Stockwood, um, between those two times, the mood at Grimsby changed oh, completely. It was complete reversal. Everybody was desperate to come and see you and play. Everybody was suddenly upbeat, positive. Um, we didn't have to win the league. We didn't have to do anything like that. But it, people just really wanted to be part of the club and loved the way the club was going. And I found it quite, um, actually quite an interesting lesson in leadership. It's how someone without a single game being played can transform the atmosphere at the club. Um, so for me, that was pretty impressive. It was partly because he wasn't John Fenty, <laughs> to be fair, um, but it's not entirely, not entirely. And, uh, you know, I, I've been quite impressed with that. And I think what it's given us is hope for the long term. Even if we don't make it up this year, we know the club has got someone who loves it and who wants to be part of the community and wants it to prosper in the long term. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, actually, it's a good time to be a town fan. Well, yeah, best of luck to the Mariners. We'll see how they get on this uh, season. And speaking of um, club takeovers and shifts in atmosphere around the club and, and another team that plays in, in black and white stripes, I think we're, we're probably going to have a question for you a bit a bit later on about that. But let's chat a bit more about fair game. And as football fans, all of us, even Joe and I as you know, fans of Premier League clubs, I think we all see the massive benefit of ensuring the stability and future of these clubs up and down the country and the communities that you use reference as well, Mike, that, that have been formed around these clubs. But what is it that made you go from, you know, being aware of these issues and possibly aware of some potential solutions to these issues to then actually being on the front line of this campaign for change? Um, I think mainly opportunity. I think two things came up. The first uh, was the Crouch Report. Um, so, the European Super League proposal, I think, just showed the strength of fans' feelings on these issues um, and that football governance wasn't some arcane topic with no impact. This was actually potential for destroying things or taking away things that was so valuable um, to hundreds of thousands, not millions of people across the country. Um, and that catalyst and then obviously Derby uh, going under the whole situation at a certain club in black and white stripes that isn't Grimsby um, all of that um, became put a sort of pressure on for change in a way that we haven't had and I think this is both our best chance for change 
but also potentially our last chance for change because the situation is so dire now. Now, the average championship club spends over 100% of its uh, all its income on players' wages alone. So it, everything else is just debt, you know, opening the stadium on a match day, um, anything that it buys, anything it does, training ground, energy bills, all of that is just added to the debt, debt, debt. In some cases, Reading, it's over 200%. That's only sustainable as long as they have someone with huge pockets who's willing to just throw money at it. As soon as that gets ruled out, either by financial fair play or because the person runs out of money, um, club goes bust. It's what we've seen at Derby. We're going to see, uh, we've seen it at Wednesday. We're going to see problems at Reading soon. And the problem with all of that is that it scales down. So you've got all the big money at the top. You then have the people who want to compete with that, your Leicesters, your West Hams, are trying to get back up. That puts pressure on those lower down because you've got the same number of players and everyone's chasing with more and more money. Then someone wants to get into the champ, into the Premiership and they've got to compete, and etc. And that goes right the way down. I was talking to the Grimsby chairman earlier today. Even at the town, they're feeling the pressure from that because each stage it goes down and the, the wages go higher we're going to see it get worse before it gets better because the Newcastle takeover now obviously they'll be a little limited in what they can spend because of fair play but nonetheless this is more money going after the same number of players and the same number of trophies so you're you're just going to drive up the costs all the way along and make it even worse for people lower down what it does is make it basically it, you lose out if you are financially sustainable you can't keep up by doing things properly for the long term and it encourages gambling you know people to take a risk and if they can scrape into the next division they have this big you know extra payday um and that's all got to change and we think there's a real opportunity for it and so yeah it's the first time that that sort of yeah, all this arcane stuff about football finances and who owns what and owners and fitting proper person's test. Nobody's really given them monkeys over the years. Now they do because we're seeing that it's coming to almost like end of days, if you like. And that sounds a bit over the top, but you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot of clubs could go under and we could lose the infrastructure that was in our society where it was an ordinary, yeah, it was a working man's game and it came from working class communities that, yeah, brought these, you know, whether Arsenal, you know, at the, at, in Woolwich or whether it was Tottenham on, uh, you know, Tottenham, was it Northumberland Park Marshes or somewhere up there, I think they started. You know, it was just all people, ordinary people. And now that's shifting away from them. And uh, I think this is our last chance to bring it back. But there's every hope that we can do it. Yeah, it's quite wild to see how far removed we've come from the sort of origins of, of these clubs. Obviously, things like, you know, TV money and, and, and whatnot have, have influenced the direction that certain clubs have ended up going in. And um, we, we actually spoke not too long ago um, with Greg Scott, who works kind of on behalf of the legal side of a group called Our Beautiful Game. You might be aware of them. They've got... Yes, yeah, uh, we work... Gary Neville and yeah, Mervyn yeah. King, exactly. So actually, well, you kind of almost preemptively answered part of my question i was going to ask sort of in this sphere of, of groups working towards more fair and more regulated um football in england you know obviously there's going to be overlap 
in terms of, of, of their goal. So how collaborative are you at Fair Game with our beautiful game, maybe other bodies as well? But then kind of conversely, is there some competition in terms of being the actual ones with, you know, the name of Fair Game rather than our beautiful game to be the ones to, to break, break the mold and, and sort of begin the regulation? No competition at all. Um, I, I don't care who gets the credit and none of us at Fair Game do, frankly. Um, you know, we're, we remember, I think there's just there's a difference of roles. So we've got the Our Beautiful Game, which represents a lot of the great and the good people who can speak with authority, um, having been in the game at the top level, including, you know, former chairman of the um, FA and things like that. Um, then you've got the Football Supporters Association, which are also vital for this and represent the voice of, you know, millions of fans right across the country. I'm a member of that, a supporter of them. Um, and what we represent are, if you like, the ordinary clubs, values-led clubs at a lower level, the people whose voices are never heard. You hear from the Premiership, you hear from the EFL, which effectively looks after the Championship. Um, don't hear much from the FA. And then, then there's the lower clubs and who's speaking for them. And this, that's why it was created about six months ago, um, because there's a whole raft. The people I, who are concerned, they don't, they want it to be based in the community. So um, they don't want all this unsustainable, you know, throwing money at everything in the hope that um, something will happen. So we want, we want to speak for them and for clubs like them. Um, so frankly, if nobody's ever heard of us, but we get a fair game, we're ha very happy indeed. Well, yeah, we're all hoping that we do get a fair game. And, you know, if you get some credit as well, that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's great too. That's great too. But um, Kai was mentioning at the start of the podcast, Mike, about how part of your role within um, <clears throat> um, within um, fair games interacting with politicians um, as part of your role as advocacy director. So, I guess, based on your time at Fair Game, how, how have those interactions with politicians been? And is, is this something where you're seeing support from politicians kind of across the political spectrum? Is it a case of basically, if a politician is a football fan, they're likely to throw that? Uh, what, what, what are you seeing, really, in terms of that? Um, there are far more football fans in Parliament than you'd imagine. And yes, they almost all support Fair Game and uh, all, all the uh, approach that, that that we've been talking about in this in this podcast. So, yeah, there's massive support actually, um, more than I expected. Um, it's all party. Uh, there's former sports ministers from all parties. We've had strong support from a former deputy prime minister, a former party leader. Um, you know, it, it just every everywhere you go, people want to see change. Um, and everybody knows that what we've got at the moment isn't sustainable. So, and it's not just the football fans. Um, you know, I, there's one MP I was talking to a couple of weeks ago who just said, look, I don't know much about, uh, I won't say which club because it's uh, a giveaway who it is, <laughs> but I don't know much about my local club. I'm not particularly a football fan, but I know how much it means to people in this town and I'm desperate to make it work for them. And it's something that as their MPI should be fighting for. And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, so I actually think there's a very good chance we're gonna get legislation um, that will set up an independent regulator. And I'm very sure that if we do that, parliament will pass it strongly. 
So that at the moment, you know, it's fool's game predictions, aren't they? But that's that's where it seems to stand at the moment. I think the battle is going to be over making sure that any regulator has teeth. You know, you can have a regulator that can just sit there and say, oh, please don't do that. Um, well, yeah, right. The Premier League's not going to listen to that. Um, and the other is around finances. Um, we've got to have some deal on a fairer and more level financial playing field. Um, what happened during COVID um, was distorted um, and it didn't necessarily give the money to the clubs that needed it most. Um, and I think we need to, uh, the parachute payments are an absolute nightmare in driving down that gambling culture. So we need to shift that. I remember someone who said that um, you only need a parachute if you're jumping off a cliff. So the, we need to make sure that there's not a cliff edge between the Premier League and the EFL. That you know, clubs can afford to get promoted and relegated, and not just at that level, all the way through. Um, and if we can sort that, then I think we will truly have reformed the game but i think that's probably going to be a battle that will go through parliament um just trying to make sure the legislation's as tight as possible assuming that the government does but one thing i would say because i've had a lot of people being skeptical and saying oh yeah the government says this politicians you know what they're like they appointed tracy crouch to lead this review she has the respect of everybody i think in the football community and joe i believe she's a spurs fan as well and you know she is she's someone that was always going to produce something positive and constructive from our perspective why would they have picked her if they had no intention of doing anything about this issue so for me that's a, a strong indicator that the government um is thinking of doing something i think it's it, our job is to work with parliament and make sure that it's enough well, all very positive to hear that and likewise sort of positive to hear your confidence that that positive changes is, is on the way and let's keep speaking about the the crouch report because we yeah could hardly have picked a better time to speak with you as tracy crouch imminently is going to provide, you know, recommendations for what legislation needs to be enacted to ensure that football is run in a much more sustainable way than it currently is. Uh, you, you mentioned the financial regulation as well as the regulator being set up for success rather than failure with regards to their influence. Is, yeah. is that what you expect um, in terms of an alignment between these um, strategies and, and what we might uh, see in the Crouch Report? Um, what, what would you, I guess, sort of consider a success um in the crouch report what, what does she need to not necessarily demand but uh, recommend well there's a good indication because she did an interim report um back in july and there's a lot of indication in that report that shows that she's very likely to ask for an independent and recommend an independent regulator set up by legislation um she's very likely and this is a, a would be a great one um, I'd say, listen, you'll come back to me in two weeks. If Mike, you said they were going to say that, and they didn't, you know. So I, I know I'm setting up to fail. But as we understand it, the um, the idea of the golden share or the crown jewels, so it's not quite like the golden share in Germany, that's been ruled out. But having those five areas, which includes things like not moving ground, not changing colours, 
crucially not changing what competitions you go into, hence European Super League, for example, without consulting and getting approval from fans. Um, that is a, is a critical one, I think. Um, and it is, I th will change the culture within the game. And then there's the finances. I think in the finances, from what I understand, they're inclined to want to do, to, to have a voluntary agreement and to get the Premier League and the EFL to agree to changes. Um, the most common response I hear to that is, yeah, good luck with that one. Um, so um, I think some of the battle and some of the areas that we, we see as something we would want to strengthen would be around um, if you can't get a voluntary agreement, then what? And that's why we're putting forward something called the sustainability index. And that basically says that you, you give money to clubs. So the divisional divide should be around attendances because the, the massive attendances in, in outside the Premier League. I think the championship is like the fifth largest supported uh, division in Europe. Um, and if we if you petition it down on on that, but require as a, in order to get that money that you've got to be financially transparent, that you've got to be uh, financially sustainable. I mean, stick on the transparency. I'm sorry. Do stop me if I'm going on. The ridiculous number. I, I was shocked when I came in because I come from the charity sector where you know we're regulated right up to the hill. You all have the same you know, transparent finances. They have, the 90-odd clubs of the Prem and the EFL have 77 different accounting systems. I mean, how on earth can you compare one to the other? You just can't. So, I mean, you, you just don't know what they're doing half the time. Um, and then that's why you get all these things where it suddenly unravels and you find that they've sold the stadium to something and that turns out to be linked back to an owner in some way all these sort of dodgy deals going on you know you we just need that stuff to end and so this sustainability index would also then hit around things like um equality diversity and inclusion um and again that's something i'd, I'd speak about a bit in, in a minute if you like that's actually, yeah, very interesting to to know about the diversity and the, and the inclusion as well, because at the end of the day, you know, individuals and, and human beings make up kind of the operations of, of these football clubs. And yeah, it, at, at all levels, we want it to be a fair game. Um, so that that's quite good to hear. But looking at a recent and major deal in the world of football and business, the, the Saudi-led takeover of Newcastle United, whilst reinvigorating a group of fans that had been sold short for some years now actually sounds similar to the situation you were describing at Grimsby. Um, but at Newcastle, it seems like this deal, you know, I, I would imagine goes against much of what fair game stands for. And I guess the question is if fair game or an independent regulator were already in a position to regulate English football, how do you think that would have affected the takeover? And one more question to tag on moreover, how, how do you then explain to fans who want change at their clubs now that simply taking money without properly considering where it's coming from isn't the only solution? Um, yeah, two very different questions, I think, but you're right. Um, I think that in terms of a regulator that was applying a fit and proper person test independently and objectively, I think would be very hard to see how the Saudis could pass that. 
Um, I think I've been on radio in the past saying things like, well, you know, they've been involved in assassinating a journalist. They've beheaded uh, people for what they consider the crime of being gay. Um, you know, they oppress women. Um, it, it makes you think, what exactly would you have to do to fail that test? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm, the mind boggles. But, and I think this is really, really important, this is not about Newcastle, and I'm not criticising Newcastle or any other individual club, because they're not the first. This is just perhaps the most extreme example. It's been going on for a long time. And what we need is a system that creates a level playing field. So I can fully understand a Newcastle fan saying, well, hang on, what about Chelsea? What about City? You know, why are you having a go at us and not them? And I think that's a fair point. What we need to do is not have a go at the fans, not have a go at the clubs, but just to say we need a proper system in place that protects fans, that protects the communities and make sure that it's not, um, that all, all the safeguards that are meant to be there are in place in reality as opposed to just for show. And I think that's important. The other thing I would also say to all fans of big clubs, and I would, I would you know, include both of you in that um, and, and others, is that it's in your interest too. Fair game is not just about the little clubs whining because we don't get much money and <laughs> they remember us guys. You know, this is about football's roots in the community and football's values. And if you look at the European Super League and the dawning of on uh, for many fans, like at Chelsea saying we want our Tuesday nights at Stoke, you know, you know, suddenly your away matches involve going to places like Spain or, you know, who knows in the future, Greece or wherever. Um, and you're already seeing talk about this because it's a global brand. Why don't we hold matches? You know, why Art Lane holds NFL matches? Couldn't we do the same? You know, reciprocate. Spurs start playing the odd match in the US. Uh, Arsenal in Dubai, maybe. What about the Chinese base? How much longer before your club, you know, the label Arsenal Tottenham is, is almost meaningless. It's, it's just a global brand that hops around from place to place. And you, you're just then relegated to observing from the sidelines. And, and that's, I think, not alarmism. That is just following the logic of what the Premier League or the big, the big six um, have uh, consistently said. So, I, I, I think this, this is something for all fans and it's something for all clubs. Um, and I know that there are sympathetic clubs at all levels, even at the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, we just we just need to make sure their voice is heard. Yeah, having people's voices heard is so important, Mike. And um, look, let's take it. You were talking about how, especially with like League One and League Two clubs, championship to some extent as well, how the the power of communities and how ultimately whilst it's great that organizations like fair game exist it's fantastic that the crouch report is probably going to recommend things that you know could lead to an independent body ultimately it still comes down to the fans um you know writing to their mps really you know making noise about this and there was a petition that i think i even signed about six months ago which i can see um, over 100, well, nearly 143,000 people signed it. Introduce an independent regulator for football in England by December 2021. So that's a good sign that fans care. But do you, 
Do you think, Mike, that fans will continue to make their voices heard on this topic? And following the Crouch report, people will actually write to their MPs and will um, will make noise. So it's not just people like you having to bang the drum, essentially. Yeah, I think it's essential that they do. And I think they will. And hopefully and thank you for inviting us on this podcast, because I think this is one way of reaching those fans. Um, As soon as the report is released, there will be from all of the different groups, uh, things like, um, you know, we'll be asking MPs to pledge their support for the Fair Game Manifesto will be um, I know MPs have said that they will be tabling motions in Parliament about this and we will encourage all of you, anyone listening to this podcast, just write to your MP, tell them how much it means to you, tell them that at this point, it's imminent, as you say, the, the Crouch Report is coming out any, you know, any minute now, we don't know exact date, but it's going to be very soon. This is the time, if we can persuade the government to enact the Crouch Report, we will have made a revolutionary difference to the clubs that you value and that's such a big part of your lives. Now's the time to do it. Don't say, well, that's very nice and turn off and I'll do it later. Now is the time to do it. So, you know, get out there, get writing to your MPs um, and save your football clubs. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that it's, you know, it has to happen this, then we have to all play our part as well. And I think we already are as fans, but we have to continue to fight the good fight. But um, we've just got a couple more questions for you, Mike. And um my first, there is kind of you know pondering the future of football, I guess, which is what we've been talking about in some ways already. But um, look, uh, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast earlier this year. There was a lot of controversy about the Super League, um, an, an idea that I think the well, I don't really know any fan that was in favour of it. To be honest, maybe a few Real Madrid fans here or there. But um, flipping the kind of Super League idea on its head, um, it's I don't want to get negative, but let's just say if the Crouch Report comes out, but actually we're not able to create this independent body, or even if we are, it doesn't really have the change we want. At what point do organisations like Fair Game, Our Beautiful Game, or whoever, have to start thinking, actually, do the football league clubs have to break away and almost start from scratch <laughs> themselves? Kind of, It's kind of like, yeah, the, the un-super league, or, you know, the ordinary league. But, but, but yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a silly point. But in, in all seriousness, at, at what point does, does it... Do, do you know? Do clubs have to think? Actually, the football league's not fit for purpose. We need to do things our own way. Or do you do you think that are you, you positive that it won't have to come down to that? I don't think we're going to be threatening any breakaways or doing anything like that. Fair game is not uh, a competitor for the EFL. It's not in any way a sort of separate body of people, and and the clubs are really clear on that. They're part of the Football League. They're part of the pyramid structure. It's something that's been in place since 1888, and and we don't want to lose it now. It's far too valuable for us. So um, yeah, I but I get your I get the point. Even though it's, it's slightly the unsuper league is not probably. I, I don't think marketing was your strong point, was it? When you were <laughs> not sure <laughs> no. that would fly very well. But no, I think what's where we're what we're thinking about is that regardless of what happens in legislation and what the government can force football to do and what the regulator can do there needs to be a change in culture and that needs to come from the clubs themselves as well as the fans the fans have been fantastic um and i think the fact that so many of them have been burnt by experiences you know portsmouth 
Bolton, Wednesday, you know, Derby now, um, Macclesfield and Bear. I mean, you could list them, couldn't you? I mean, uh, it, actually, it's probably quicker to list the ones that haven't been close to bankruptcy. And that's generated this drive. And I think the clubs are now beginning to come together and think the same. And the fact that we've got 31 and there are plenty more we're in talks with, that number's going to expand. Um, we, we're seeing a, a significant body of clubs saying enough is enough. Um, so I think regardless of what the government uh, does, we can't just sit there and let them do everything for us. Although that's my job to try and make that happen, but there you go. Uh, <laughs> we, we've also got to, clubs themselves have got to step up and fair game is part of that process. And that's why we engage with the EFL and others um, to make, to see if we can reform the game from within as well, but constructively, you know, we're not here saying we're going to break away or do this. You know, that's, we've, we've seen where those sorts of threats get you. And, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not, we're not looking at that at all. Looking 10 years into the future, let's say, and assuming that the Football League is still around as, as an organization and that it's not the, the un-Super League at, at this point, um, although, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting more and more sold on this, Joe. I'm going to have to fight, fight your corner. Um, but no, you said something earlier, Mike, that was, that was very poignant, that, that this could be the last chance for change, um, kind of like the final stand. It, if we don't get this independent regulation over the line, is it only a matter of time until more clubs like Berries and Macclesfields, you know, would have gone gone bust? Because it sounds like this, you know, success is to be able to maintain the traditions and sort of whoever is able to capitalize on the best coaches will, you know, do the best. And it's not going to be as much maybe about the finances, but but on on the worst case side of things, um, yeah. If if this Crouch report and the, the follow up to it doesn't succeed, where where are we heading? Yeah, more bankruptcies, absolutely. Um, you, you look at, I mean, I mentioned earlier about the championship, that's not sustainable. Um, and how many of them are going to get promoted? Three. And how long will they stay there? Um, you know, it's at, at some point more and more of these clubs. And I think we're, we're already a long way. I mean, that's not some distant future. That's already happening now. We're seeing it unfolding. Um, we're seeing it unfolding further down the league. And I think it will destroy clubs. We've got so used to clubs being rescued at the last moment, like Bolton were. Um, we've got so used to clubs resurrecting themselves. Um, you know, Phoenix clubs, Aldershot, I was there on Saturday, were, were one of them. Um, and, you know, we've seen AFC Wimbledon, the, the obvious big example. Um, you know, it shows just what fans can do. But we can't take that for granted. And it puts it all on the fans. Unless the fans bail in, like they did at Portsmouth as well, um, what happens if you, your fans are disorganised or, you know, they, they just don't have the money or whatever? There's all sorts of things um, that, that could go wrong with that. And then we could lose clubs permanently. Um, and even if we don't, we're going to see clubs, weaker versions of the clubs lower down, in the leagues um, and you're already seeing even in the lower reaches of the leagues that it's the clubs with an owner with money that are lifting up not necessarily those that have a huge fan base and long-standing roots in their community um, and I think we'll see more of that do we want football just to become the plaything of individual owners who decide I'll, I'll take that village team and I'll make it into a Premier League team. You know, 
Um, I, that's not what football's ever been about. And I think we're very close to losing that. Uh, and I'm usually an optimist and I'm still an optimist because I think this is a really good chance, but I think it is our last chance. And I think if we try and look at it again in five years time, we'll find half those clubs gone. God, well, let's, let's very much hope that's not the case. But I think, you know, if, you know, these communities we've spoken about, if they can come together, if organisations like you can keep putting the government under pressure, if the Crouch Report delivers what we hope for, hopefully there will be um, some positive news and, you know, positive change for football over the next few years. But I think that's probably a good place for us to end it today. Um, just want to thank my co-host, Kaitel, as always. And then, of course, uh, extra special thank you from the both of us to Mike for joining us and we hope you enjoyed being our guest Mike and also um how can our guests and this well how can our listeners in fact um keep up to date with you and everything that Fair Game's doing if you go onto our website uh fairgame.co.uk uh, will you'll see everything on there that will uh indicate how you can support us and help us the key things are um volunteer if you can we're, we're always on the lookout for people who can help us we're a completely voluntary run organization uh, no one takes any salaries or anything um and uh, the second thing is write to your mp as we said earlier just let them know now's the time not next year not the year after it's now so as soon as that reports out get your pen and paper or I'm showing me age there aren't i tap away on your keyboard for your emails and get hold of your mp and uh, yeah, that's what I asked you to do. And I just want to say a big thank you to both of you for um, a very friendly, welcoming time and for having me on your show. It's been brilliant. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, I can definitely say for both of us to, to have this conversation with you, Mike, and um, likewise, wishing you the best of luck, wishing Fair Game the best of luck and wishing the beautiful game realistically the best of luck as a, a consequence to, to everything that's going on with the Crouch Report at the minute. Um, I, I share a lot of your optimism and I, I, I think that yeah, it's it's going to be heading in the right direction sooner rather than later, because um, the the alternative yeah doesn't really bear thinking about. But like I said, thanks again, Mike, to our listeners. If you enjoyed this interview, please do follow us wherever you like to stream your podcast. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast. You can find us the same way on YouTube. And if you feel like putting some faces to these voices, check that out. And please do subscribe on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at United Mates FP. So give us a follow there. And then for all of that content and more in one place, visit the website. That's unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.